and welcome to the 42 Rugby Weekly. Gavin Casey here in studio. Thanks a million to all of you who came out for our quiz last night in D2 uh, in an attempt to raise funds for our good friend Sinead Lounce. Uh, Sinead was recently diagnosed with a rare liver condition uh, just weeks after her wedding and she's probably going to need a liver transplant and possibly even a partial bowel transplant uh, and needs to relocate to the UK for a year. Her GoFundMe page, if you Google uh, GoFundMe and support Sinead, you'll find it there. There, I think it was around 3,000 euro raised last night. So sincere sincere thanks to everybody who came out uh, and helped out in that regard. Uh, I'm joined in studio by the three-eyed raven himself, Mr. Murray Kinsler. Murray, how are you? I'm good. How are you? I'll ask this week. How are you? Do you know what? I'm excellent. Thank you. Uh, would you like to address that uh, three-eyed raven comparison made by oh, yeah. Sir Baswell Tarley on uh, Joe's rugby podcast? I mean, there's not much to say. Uh, I was just enjoying my day yesterday and one of my mates WhatsApp me said, you've been absolutely slated on one of the p- podcasts. So uh, I went and had a listen. I laughed. I thought it was pretty funny, to be honest. Uh, and I kind of do look like him, so... Are you, you're accepting that, are you? I'm accepting him. Do you think he looks like Bran? I don't know who the three-eyed raven is. Bran Stark. Spoilers. Do you watch Game of Thrones? Do you know Bran? No, no. Um, yeah, sorry. <laughs> I can, I can kind of see it. I can kind of see it. And uh, there is the, there is that wisdom to which Barry alluded as well. Uh, there was a lot of mention of weird lad as well. So <laughs> I don't know, <laughs> yeah, I don't know if I'm too happy. He was a bit harsh with the, with the idea that you're the kind of guy who says uh, to somebody... You had 14 points last yeah, night. I don't I'm, think you're the kind of guy who's calling lads up for that. I'll just show you, I don't have a good memory nights <laughs> out. Uh, but I don't mind yet. Yeah, me and Barry were former teammates. I actually played for UL Bows years ago. Uh, I remember rooming, him, rooming with them actually on a night out. I don't remember much of the night out. To how be many honest. pints did he have? And I haven't a clue how many pints he had, <laughs> but it was a fair few. Uh, so yeah, fair play to him. Nice <clears> one. Uh, we're also joined, you could hear him there, by Andy Dunn. How are you, Andy? I'm great, thanks. How was your Easter, Andy? Uh, it was great. I was down in, in Nina in uh, Tipperary and I was in a pub actually, speaking of which, talking about measuring pints. I don't know how many we had, but I was with a married couple, Thomas and Rose, and then Enda, who's Thomas's brother, and we got quite a heated argument. Well, I, I witnessed quite a heated argument about what is the true, where is the true home of hurling? Is it Toomey Vara? Um, which the lad said to me, Vara is the home of hurling. Um, but Rose, who's from the neighbouring parish, is Killadangan, says they're the former home of hurling because they've never won a senior All Ireland. Mm. Um, so, yeah, it was very heated debate because Killadangan have won an intermediate, but the lad said that doesn't count. So, uh, <laughs> it, was, it was punchy stuff. Where, where do you stand on the debate? Um, I'd probably say Tomb to are the home of hurling. Tomb, you're even it. shortening it yeah, already. I'm going to go straight in for the kill. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Well, it's controversial. It is. <laughs> if we can, if we can keep that level of controversy up for the podcast, we'll be doing well. We're going to be breaking down the two Champions Cup semi-finals and looking ahead to the final as well. And uh, we've also got a chat with Jordy Murphy on the way. We'll do it in chronological order because uh, that's just the way I want to do it, frankly. Um, and also, it means that we get to finish on a high as opposed to yeah. the low of Monsters semi-final defeat. But we'll tear into that. Right now, okay, what the hell happened? We'll start with that. It's a broad question, but where did it go wrong for the Murray, in your opinion? Um, in terms of this game, it immediately went wrong, obviously, with the aerial contest. You know, two uh, losses in that area within the first minute, and they're 3-0 behind very quickly. Um, like, this was a really interesting part of the game. I thought Munster um, really left Mike Haley in a number of really difficult situations. The work around the, the contest I thought was really poor. They're escorting. I know it's I know it should just be about the two people going up into the air, but it's not anymore. It's about blocking off subtly the kick chase. And Munster did that really poorly, I thought, and, and left Mike Haley in tough situations. On top of that, you have Saracens. Rather than going up for a regain in the air, they're going up to bat the ball back. So it makes it even more difficult. And their work rate on the inside of that was better than Munster's, I thought. They got so many of those scraps on the ground. Um, and that was a really dominant feature of the first half um, and allowed Saracens to accumulate accumulate points. Um, on top of that, it was a tough day. The first penalty probably summed up CJ Sander getting penalised where really could have gone the other way or could have just been a scrum. Two players kind of catch the ball at the same time and CJ Sander's pinged for, for not rolling away. They didn't get that um, rub of the, of the green, I guess, from Jerome Garces. 
And then when they had the ball, which was only around 16 minutes, I think compared to Sarri's about 22 minutes, they had a lot of possession. They just weren't able to really create anything. I thought some of their attacking play was disappointing again. One example in particular stands out where they played off a scrum. They moved the ball wide to Mike Haley for a carry down the left and then they hit up in midfield and it's all a, a kind of power play. The third phase then is bounced back again. Tyler Blaindahl doesn't fix a defender. Darren Sweetnam runs straight across the pitch, essentially eating up all the space outside him, even though they actually pre- preserved a couple of bodies out there on the edge. And um, that kind of summed up to me what was a, a disappointing attacking performance again. I think even one of their first line-out attacks, they just launched a box kick from it. Obviously, they're looking for territory and you got to have an element of that against Saracens. But for me, it was a little bit disappointing that there wasn't something a little bit more creative from a, a midfield line out on the left-hand side, a chance to be creative. So, look, there are a number of issues and we could probably pick out more of them, but um, really it was a, a comprehensive win for Saris who were mightily impressive. Yeah, it was a bit of a, an on-paper result, Andy, really. Obviously, we, <clears throat> the three of us sat here last week and we actually all had a hunch that Munster might get the job done, perhaps buying into that whole Munster mythology or history in the competition a little bit too much. If you were to look at it purely... On paper, I think Saris obviously were the favourites. And you'd probably say they were even nearly 15 points favourites if they uh, put everything together as they did. But for Munster, where do you think it went wrong? Like, what was uh, the, the predominant issue in your mind watching they, it? Yeah. Um, <clears throat> well, you know, when you, t- you mentioned, like, the Munster, we, we buy into that Munster mythology and the times past that were a great success. The, like, that, they... They were the mythology was built around um the team having a very definite way of playing and a definite style. Um and I was chatting about this during the week. Um the Munster team in seventy eight that beat the All Blacks, Tony Ward was ten and the, there was the huge kind of positives around Tony Ward's play was the opposition didn't know what he was going to do and the criticisms were that his own team also didn't know what he was going to do so they you know they were instinctive they were hard to play against um, but I suppose the overriding thing about that side was they were an instinctive side that were a threat to opposition teams and they were penetrative and then you look at the side that won two European Cups and they had a different style. They had a very strategic guy in Raj who was a, a tactical kicking maestro who they had some great ball carriers up front with a great scrum and set piece. They weren't as instinctive, but they had a very definitive style. Um, and, you know, without tongue in cheek, you're talking about Game of Thrones and Murray being the three-eyed raven. Like, you talk about box sets, Munster are the in-betweeners. Now, they are, because they don't have a definitive style. They're, they're literally in between two ends of the spectrum. They don't know whether they are a territory team. They didn't play territory against Saris. They didn't penetrate the line. They didn't try offloads. They didn't look to attack space. What they did was they did v- vanilla kind of rugby, um, just like Murray described, three-phase power plays done in front of the best defence in Europe, who just scanned the field, watched them do it, and closed them down. At no stage were they under threat as a defence. So the, I think there's a a problem with Munster around that. It's find out what works for that group and commit to it and do it. And it doesn't matter if it's... they. I think they should go with a, like a strong territory game. And that includes with Joey Carberry at 10. I think they should go back to choking teams, squeezing them. I never won against Munster, ever. I had 12, I think 13 matches playing for three different clubs. I always felt under pressure. I always made dumb decisions deep in my own half because I was squeezed. And and you do something stupid to try and break out because you're, you know, someone's got figuratively or literally speaking got their foot on your neck. And uh, I mean, Quinlan, does it? <laughs> yeah, we'll go back to Quinny again. But you know what I mean? They're, yeah. they're, I, I just think watching them right now, they've actually a better squad than they've had in the last three or four seasons but it's very non-committal kind of safe looking rugby and I think they've got to do one or the other But that's an issue as well Murray isn't it that they actually do have a better squad they have strength and we, we can talk about Tyburn in a moment and there are other players that uh, to add to the equation there and yet if you to go back two years to their last semi-final defeat to Saracens and how we were saying last week and everybody has been saying for two years how they barely fired a shot 
in that fixture. It's not to suggest they didn't really fire a shot in this one. It's just that when they did, it was completely ineffectual. Like there wasn't a vast difference, I don't think, in the two games, or at least in terms of Munster's effectiveness with what they were trying to do. Yeah, well, it's exactly the same margins. It's 16 point. Now, Munster would, as they did immediately after the game, vehemently argue that they have improved. And even if you look at some of the personnel, I think that is a fair argument. Like Chris Farrell was one of the better players on the pitch from both teams, I thought. What is he, 26? He'll get better and better. I think he's still got loads of scope to to really improve. You look at someone like Noah Scanlon Hooker, again, I would say the same thing. He's got loads of scope to improve. Scope to improve. Even Byrne, who's a little bit older, but... Um, only recently, relatively recently, back to to Ireland with Munster. So, I think their squad is stronger certainly than than that day. Let's also factor in the fact that Carby and Earls were missing, and mm-hmm. against a team as good as Saracens, like to put it bluntly, you have to have all your best players on the pitch. They're essentially a test team. You know, every single player on their squad is capable, would be capable of playing test rugby. I think they do a pretty good job in the Six Nations as well. So, if you're going to beat them, you need everyone fit. They did miss those two players. I know Van Gran afterwards was trying not to. I guess um, play down what is what the replacements had done, but they're your two most creative attacking backs, and um, you need them fit. I think for Munster again, it's looking at how can we actually improve. As we say, we can talk about loads of different issues within the game, but I mean they'll probably look at their squad and say, is there scope for 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 more from the outside? You know, to look at it with a critical eye in their in their pack, is there enough ball carrying? dynamism because you look at the Sarri's pack it was ridiculous mm. every single one of them essentially can can break the gain line you look across the board and every single one of them is a, is a potential ball carrier <coughs> Munster quite, don't quite have that Kilcoyne can obviously be really destructive the other front rows probably not anywhere near that level as carriers the second rows Klein is really hard working without being that quite that d- dynamic and burn really skillful but again maybe struggles on the gain line at times Stander obviously huge work rate but the other back rows, apart from Arno, both off the bench, aren't <coughs> predominantly ball carriers. So they may look at that. Um, and then I, there is a bit of chat that they're looking for a, a kind of marquee signing in the back line. Yako Taute is obviously leaving, so there goes one of the NIQ spots. And I think the RFU will be willing to help Munster to improve if there's a, a bit of money there. Um, so it'll be interesting to see if anything happens there, potentially even in midfield, to bring in a bit more, more dynamism there. So there is scope for them to improve. Carberry as well is going to get better and better and better. He's a very young player, so... There is that side of it, but right now they're not at Sarri's or Leinster's level, and that's been made clear once again. I, I don't know. I still think if you brought, I, I maybe if you looked at the likes of say um, those Munster sides I mentioned, and they had David Wallace and they'd Quinny and ball, like big ball carriers, they'd Axel, they'd um, Paul and Dunnick were probably similar enough in well, maybe not to to uh, Tyg Byrne, but certainly to Klein. They were very workmanlike. They had yeah. a huge amount of work they got through. They weren't neither were explosive ball carriers, but they did have more carriers in that European Cup winning side, I think. But if you were to add in one or maybe two ball carriers and still play that middle ground style, it's not gonna make a difference. I think if they <clears throat> if they committed, for example, to, like the fact they don't have a load of ball carriers lends itself further to the argument they could play a territory game. And they have a really, really strong scrum. And John Ryan and, and Klein in behind them haven't gone backwards once all year. They've been like super tight, really well-run scrum that could really squeeze teams and creak teams. And as long as, the, you know, the, the All Blacks beat Ireland 16-0 in the third test back in, when was it, 2012? Mm-hmm. And they didn't play a single phase of rugby in their own half for the first 29 minutes. You go back and watch that video. They just launched the ball into the Irish 22. What happened was Ireland cracked, and when they cracked, New Zealand had brilliant broken field players. Now, Munster have Joey Carby, they have Connor Murray, they have Chris Farrell, they have Keith Earls, they have a brilliant back three. If they choke teams, play territory, it's not negative, it's really smart. And eventually when the team cracks or shows a, a chink, then it's about what have you got to break them down. But they're not doing that. And then they're, they're kind of half getting, let's go get some new ball carriers. It's yeah. not going to solve the issue. It's a coaching issue, I think, that they need to get clarity. They have done I think it they, a few times during yeah. the season as well. It's interesting. I think, essentially, I think that is their game plan. Like it, they box kick more than anyone out of their own half mm. to try and win that possess, that territory battle. They hound after kicks generally. I think in this game... That was also the plan, but as we saw with that boxing off a lineup, but I think Saracens did the same so well to them that Mm. 
they didn't have a chance and they were pinned back in their half. They had to defend so much. And you saw it, the first, very first Saracen attack of the second half, they were absolutely exhausted. 22 phases later, mm. they've conceded a try and it's pretty much game over at that stage. I think they probably were trying to play that territory game, but maybe because of the aerial, the but poor aerial contest uh, and the work around that, they just gave up. But yeah. I don't, yeah, the t- I, I don't think it works, the territory game, playing off nine, the, these high box kicks. It's not really a territory game. It, that's a kicking game that surrenders possession with a kick chase, trying to win it back. I, I, It just drives me mental, by the way, in Irish rugby, in Leinster rugby, watching Luke McGrath doing it five, six times, although Luke had a very good game. Connor was much improved. I, it's just become this fad. Like, mm. why do we have to just keep... Box kicking 10 metres up into the air when you could hit your 10 and drill it 50 metres. No one's been able to give me a good argument in the last year on it. And it's just, it's like a, f- a trend or a fad. It's going to be completely eliminated in about a year's time because it's it's pretty worthless at this stage. And we just keep on using them. Yeah, that's, that's interesting. That's not a territory Can, game, can yeah. you give him an argument against I, that? I, I Just interestingly, I read a piece with Wayne Smith. It was on Rugby Pass recently. Um, you know, the legendary yeah, yeah. All Blacks coach and he said he had always banned his teams from doing box kicks because they were so shite at it <laughs> really was the main reason he said if you're not Conor Murray or Ben Youngs don't box yeah. kick it I think the Irish teams have done it particularly well we did it great for about a yes. year and then everyone's on to it, it uh, mm. like it's over yeah. now I had a chat with Rob Carney this week it's actually on we'll have it on the show next week the, the chat with him talking about this and how the game has changed so much because of all this escorting it, it's, it's utterly transformed. You saw Ireland's frustrations in the Six Nations. Mm. They couldn't win back any box kicks. Mm. And they were, off the record, complaining about being blocked off the ball. So I think it is going to change. I think there mm. is going to be a realisation that it's not a successful tactic anymore, as well as the referees, I think, are going to clamp <coughs> down because it's eating up so much ball and play time. You, you see, the, the game is now essentially a set piece when there's a box kick. Yeah, yeah. Um, it was brilliant to see Johnny Lacey... Um, Penalising recently in the in the Challenge Cup, he, yeah. he called used against Bristol and they didn't box kick, and he actually gave a scrum against them because of five seconds at the back of the uh, back yeah. of the rock. I'd love to see more referees do that. It is a very dull part of the game. I think their issue with for a lot of teams is they feel their ten is going to be under too much pressure. To, to well, get. I don't know where it's come from. Like it's it's again it's muddy the waters between what is a territory game. It's a kicking ploy that doesn't really work, and suddenly the ten can't kick. For territory anymore, like nobody's doing it. I just yeah. don't see why. There's no, yeah. there's no compelling reason that a ten can't like stand in the pocket and kick it. I actually, yeah, I agree, I agree with you, and I think also centres will have a massive part to play in it. We're probably yeah. seeing that. We've discussed it during the Six Nations how yeah. using someone like Gary Ringrose for a territorial yeah, yeah. kick to grass, then you can pressure that way as well. Yeah. If you can find grass there, and you can get. A, you saw Robbie <clears> Henshaw <throat> do it. A brilliant example in the Leinster game where. They had turnover possession, or Sean O'Brien offloads, and he, uh, Sexton hits Henshaw, finds the this grass deep right, mm. bounces into touch. Usually takes a quick one, and then they choke tackle Ramos mm. after Henshaw's blocked down. That was a great example of a and Munster have kick. arguably. And I know there's the talk of them looking for for new recruits and personnel. But if you look at Murray, who obviously is a very good box kicker, but once it's not overused, can be can be re- recycled and used occasionally with effect. You have Carberry who can kick off both feet and you've got Scannell as a left footer. The amount of options that gives you as a backline to kick territory effectively. Mm-hmm. And if you go back to that All Blacks test in 2012 and watch that first 20-odd minutes and they didn't just do box kicks from their own 22. They did a whole range of kicks and at no stage were they under pressure in their own half. And eventually a team starts to creak and do stupid things. That is a safe, smart tactic that they're underutilising given the resources they've got. A brilliant nine, a brilliant, well, I know Joey wasn't there on, on against Saris, but just as a tactic going forward. But I, I don't buy into the, we need to go and find two to three, you know, marquee ball playing or ball carrying guys and then play this middle ground rubbish uh, which is going to negate the ball carriers yeah. that come in so do you think that squad is good enough to win the uh, Cup <clears throat> I actually think they could yes but they would have to be at literally like 95% plus everybody fit with a bit of luck but I do think they could win I think they're selling themselves short right now by saying no no look we're, our limit is Saris it's not your limit against Saris is playing a kind of a middle ground 
brand of rugby that doesn't ask any questions, that doesn't commit to a territory style or an offload style that's not penetrative. If you fix one, two or all three of those things, that's a strong, really, really strong Munster side. And anyone can win when you get to a semi-final. But they're just not committing to a style is what I'm kind of ranting about. That's that's huge as well. To like when you're saying that the capacity is there, even if okay, granted they'd have to be at ninety five or hundred yeah. percent to get the job done. That the capacity is there, and yet, from what we've seen, really in retrospect, they aren't actually that close to to achieving that at all. Like that that's a massive coaching issue. Like it's a if huge change. It takes massive leadership for a head coach to commit to a certain style, and then it takes the buy in of the senior players. And what I found really interesting was it's like they kind of. They flirted with the idea. They sent uh, Jeremy, or Jerry Flannery and Felix down to New Zealand to go learn and see what they're doing. And all the sound bites coming back from that was like, the two boys going, my God, do we complicate stuff? My God, do we do this, that and the other? The simplicity of how they do it down there. The simplicity of what they do down there is they give the players uh, decision-making autonomy, but they work all the time on skills. And therefore the coaching role becomes a little more redundant. And up in the Northern Hemisphere, we're, there's too many coaches who want to control everything, who want to be have massive input at all phases of play. And in New Zealand, they're the total opposite um, and they're the best in the world, yet nobody's copying them. So the two boys, I would have thought, came back from New Zealand and probably got three weeks to try and half implement something. And then... Something goes wrong in a Pro 14 game, someone spills an offload, everyone tightens up and it's all thrown in the bin. And eight months later, when you haven't worked and worked and worked and been prepared to lose away to Zebra, trying to play a certain style, you end up in third gear. Even though your effort is in fifth gear, your your style of play is in third gear when it comes down to it against Saris. And I've often gone back to the Argentina side that I know we'd five injuries in the last World Cup who hockeyed us in, in the in Cardiff. They committed to a style and were awful at it for about two years until they got better at it and they hockeyed us. And that's the long and short of it. They lost 78-12 to South Africa in Durban playing that way. But nobody threw it all in the bin. Um, so I just, I think Munster need to commit... Um, commit to a style and in that way that current squad optimised could win a European Cup but mm. the mistake would be now to go and throw it, the baby out with the bat water and get rid of three or four good players and bring in three marquee guys who are going to have to fit into this cloudy game plan well, that That's an issue in, <clears throat> in itself is that if you do bring in say there is talk of bringing in reinforcements in midfield and bringing in a marquee guy we know probably it's going to be at 12 because you're not dropping Chris Farrell. He's too important. Yep. We also know Rory Scannell is a super player, by the way. Mm. But if you're going to drop one one or the other at the moment, it mm. would be Scannell. And he probably is underutilised in that he's a, an incredibly good footballer. Mm. But they just don't deploy that in any not way, you. shape or form. Yeah. So then he falls by the wayside and you bring in some brute... Yeah, it's but that's that, that, that is a panic yeah, that is interesting Because Rory Scannell can pass <clears throat> off both sides really well. There's all, we, like I've written a piece about him being that second playmaker, but he's not really used that way. No, Ever. no. he actually carries. That's because they're in the mid, they're in the middle ground. They're they're having to yeah. find they they're in the in betweeners. They you know the great brands in the world. You can say it in three words. What do they do? Or Nike, just do it. You you know you look at Connacht. You know exactly what they're trying to do. You look at Ulster now. They're brave, and you know exactly what they're trying to do. You know exactly what Lance are trying to. do. Unfortunately, look at Ireland, you know exactly what they're trying to do, but it's not worked. But you know what they're trying to do. They've committed to something. Once they're nebulous, they're in the middle. I'm like, what are they trying to do? I don't know. It's a really interesting one because obviously Johan van Graan has been um, schooled in the Heineken Meyer mm. philosophy. Like, and if you look at Stade Francais now, you can see that he hasn't changed uh, an iota in his coaching days. It is kick into the opposition half, pressure them that way, try and run over them. Mm. So that's what he's come through I guess and he's probably he is a young coach isn't he like mm. he is a young coach yeah. who's in his first head coaching job who has not had this experience so he's probably going through that journey himself in terms of discovering his <laughs> coaching identity yeah. I guess um, so that's a, an interesting part of this journey as well he's been handed this responsibility and I guess in his first full season now has realised how strong that blueprint has to be mm. 
But the problem is, given that he's gone through that, um, I suppose, mentorship from Meyer, if he's that set in his ways that that's the way rugby should be played, even if he changes personnel, whether it's playing personnel or coaching staff, if he brings in kind of somebody in his own mould, nothing will change at all. Yeah, I don't think Johan van Graan is that set in his ways, is what I'm trying to say. I'd say he's still trying to figure it all figure it all out. Well, the fact he, he was prepared to send his two assistants to New Zealand is a real positive. Yeah. I would say um, the difficulty, I've seen it happen so many times, is everyone goes, everyone has their eureka moment, going, oh, we're going to play a different way. And everyone buys in and there's a couple of team meetings and there's a bit of video and chit-chat. And then it's not really committed to actually and it's not trained that well. And after four weeks, suddenly everyone starts tightening up again and saying, actually, no, let's go back and let's run our shape because there's safety in running shape. I can't, what's his name? Conte, is it, who, co- who was sacked from Chelsea? He was one of the first football coaches who, who brought in unopposed training for soccer and he was laughed out the door um, in Chelsea because they were like, what the hell? Like, soccer doesn't... Now, we can detract from soccer and they dive and they do this, but they're they're also the top-level footballers have come through a much bigger pool, a much more competitive pool to be a top professional footballer and mm. is to be a rugby player. So, they, you know, Roy Keane's on last night talking about them throwing their hair gel at each other and he's priceless. It's, <laughs> it's right because they're windbags and it's very frustrating to watch, but they're unbelievably skillful. And every time they play in training, it's opposed. Mm. So you can't quite transfer that to rugby because no one would be fit for Saturday but similarly you can't just run unopposed shape and patterns all week long because it doesn't get you anywhere because it doesn't happen like that there's too many variables on Saturday and there's too much contact there's too much competition at set piece and breakdown so to run you know what happens is we're the All Blacks they don't do any of that the vast majority of their training sessions are skills based um, in an opposed setting so they build it up from skill unopposed the skill opposed the skill under extreme pressure and then it's just all skills based and then they 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 t- kind of flirt around the idea of a bit of shape for one or two phases but then it's over to the lads <clears throat> use the full space on the field and work on implementing the skills we've coached that is so hard to coach and so hard to do it takes seasons on seasons like the RGs did but what we do I've seen it so much in Ireland and probably in the Northern Hemisphere is half do it for a month reverse out when something goes wrong and now it's all feel comfortable again and run shape and patterns unopposed all week. And it's garbage. Okay, so to finish on Munster, I think you've already answered it, Andy, but I might ask yourself, Murray, where do they improve then? Like, how do they improve going into next season in order to at least, I suppose, break the duck of losing semi-finals. I mean, okay, they might they might actually break that duck in the Pro 14 still this season, but in terms of European semi-finals. Yeah, like, I, I, it was interesting after the match when they, and I do to an extent agree that there was a bit of a gap and they're not quite there at Saris yet, but I, I, I just hope that that's not an opt-out and that's not an acceptance of um, losing another semi-final. I think, with some of the stuff we mentioned, I think with getting a better start, I think with making a better effort on those aerial contests and winning those I think uh, taking a number of attacking opportunities and making more of them rather than playing for a penalty potentially as they did on a couple of occasions and did win a few penalties Um, being more ambitious with that I think um, can make a big difference and close that gap very quickly and and put some pressure back on Saris you saw it I thought when they got around 9-9 in the game and then finally you saw some mistakes from Saracens Um, Lamasatelli knocked on in, in midfield there was a, a knock-on from a high ball um, and suddenly, you know, Murray's kicking 9-9 and looks like a really good opportunity to go into halftime with that um, momentum behind you. And then, unfortunately, they give away two pretty cheap penalties and they go in behind and Saracens then step up a gear in the second half. I, don't, I really don't think... I really don't think they should accept that there's a there's a huge gap. Even if the rest of us can look at it and say that the quality of squads is, is different, um, I think that mindset will be a massive part of it. And look, I would go along with Andy and... But they won Europe yeah. um, back in the day. The Munster thing was always being, okay, we probably don't have the resources and the money and the personnel that the big glamour clubs have, but they still won Europe. I know they're brilliant players. And half the game the has changed team, though, yeah. hasn't it? Like when you look Probably at the last opposition. eight, nine winners, it has been the teams with the resources. Like there's, there yeah, hasn't been has, a breakthrough has. team. 
Well, I still want a dream, you know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We all want a dream, Andy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, we only have the, I don't have the answers, but... Um, what? <laughs> no, my joke. Yeah. I don't have the answers, but I, I, don't, I really don't think... I think that there's an element of which I really was surprised, and I don't like saying it, but there was an element of passive acceptance among Munster supporters after this week. Mm. I was look, this is where we're at. And I, that's that's a dangerous territory for Munster supporters to get into. They shouldn't. They should. They should. They have fire in their belly after that. It's you know. I know you you get worn down by anyone does by losing that many semi-finals. But this kind of oh look, this is our lot. They shouldn't. They shouldn't go near that. But how could they not? After watching a game in which you lose by sixteen <clears throat> points and a game which we've pretty much seen before. Like, what, how, how are they expected to even have fire in their bellies when they know that the team isn't quite there, really? Maybe, I, you know... I, and well, how can they even by, influence it? Like? Well, by, by using their resources better on the team, and the supporters can't influence this, but even an awareness that that team is not optimising okay. what it's got. It doesn't accept and suddenly we can't do any better. They can do about 30% better, in my view. Easily, so therefore that should get them fired up again because we're actually we're underperforming. This whole we're you know we're outdone ourselves and we're trying and we're you know but we can't get any better. That's shy in my view. Like they they are so capable. They look at their backline. They've Connor Murray potentially Joey Carberry obviously fit Chris Farrell. Keith Earls, like that's among one of the best backlines in Europe. They've CJ Stander, Peter O'Mahony, Ty Byrne was up for European Player of the Year. Mm. They've a brilliant front row. Like, what's the problem? Sorry, we're doing our best, but that's not that they're not actually at their best. I don't think they're anywhere near it. And maybe that's why I was surprised to see this acceptance. Look, that seems to have been a line that's kind of that's a malaise that's kind of permeated through Munster rugby all of a sudden. Let's just. Maybe we need, a, you know, more money and bigger players. They can't just accept that. Fair enough. We'll tie up uh, Munster there. So and uh, move on to the better news. That is, Leinster are an insanely good team and playing uh, a very good brand of rugby. It has to be said. Um, to lose, let us down a bang. Andy, I heard you on radio on News Talk. You uh, went uh, heart overhead and said, "To lose, we're going to win the game." Yeah. I was sitting next to my mother in the car. I was like, "That's Andy from the podcast making that <laughs> wild call." And my mother goes, "Oh, see the bald fella." <laughs> but uh, it didn't quite go to plan for your beloved to lose, Andy, and yet it went to plan pretty spectacularly for your equally beloved Lancer. I would have thought. Yeah, I thought um, the danger for Leinster was. Um, there's how they were going to play. I thought, I think the Leinster, the natural tendency for Leinster is to be um, imp- impulsive at times. And when I saw James Lowe being selected, I went, you know, he, there's an element, he's so good, but there's an element of don't touch the wet paint with him. He's just going to touch it, you know what I mean? And <laughs> uh, so therefore, if the game got really broken and... Um, deconstructed I thought Leinster are going to go touch the wet paints and Toulouse are going to capitalise in a broken game so I called it for that reasoning then I saw the team sheet and I saw these, they, a classic enigmatic French selection let's not pick our international 9 and 10 at 9 and 10 which they didn't do and then Thomas Ramos was under quite a lot of pressure to be their um, tactical kicker from fullback, he kicked a restart dead. He got blocked down, and their game disassembled in front of her eyes. And uh, now the the really positive side, apart from Toulouse disassembling, is that Leinster have again showed an ability to to show, I suppose, to be to have variation in their game, to change their tactics to suit the situation, um, to have the balls to pick James Low. And the don't touch the wet paint mentality when it, probably all the safe bets would have been to say, pick guys who will do the safe things against Toulouse and not break the game up. But they they had the trust to have Low on the wing who can influence their whole team in a positive way. But they'd also trust in a process to play smart rugby. So they, they need to be applauded on many levels, I think. But bravery and selection is one of them and then how they implemented their game I'll shut up now because I'm, I'm talking a lot but how they implemented their game again was, was superb 
Yeah, credit to uh, Stuart Lancaster and in particular Leo Cullen, I think, Murray. Like we've probably spoken on the podcast over the last few weeks, how despite the fact that we we obviously know they're an unbelievably good team, they probably haven't been at their anywhere near their best, actually. You've mentioned on this podcast and I think on Airsport as well that part of the reason is possibly just due to the fact that they qualified for the Pro 14 semi-finals so early and therefore the games become uncompetitive. It's not quite ideal preparation and yet pretty much in every aspect, including just being at the right emotional pitch for a massive game, it all came together and it was just a reminder if it was needed that this is really the premier team in Europe. Alongside Saracens, you'd have to say. I actually think they could be better. I can think the, I can think better. I think there was a massive moment in the game where they didn't give up a penalty try. I, I actually thought it was a penalty try when Henshaw slapped the ball away from Famuina. I think that would have completely transformed the game. I, I thought there were a few moments like that. Look, it was a brilliant Lens performance. Absolutely, there was so much impressive stuff, but I felt it was a little bit more in the balance maybe than, than others have, um, particularly having rewatched it and, and gone through it in a bit more detail. Um, that for me was a penalty try. He slaps the ball away. I think people were talking about defenders being in behind, but Johnny Sexton and Carney had just swapped positions, so Femwina would have scored. And then uh, William Servat, the assistant coach, runs on with the tee and makes the decision for themselves. So the players, you can hear on the ref mic, they were really frustrated. If they felt we have Leinster backpedaling here on the ropes, let's let's finish them off. So they didn't convert that. There was also a brilliant tackle from Rob Carney in the third minute on Ches and Colby where he cuts the defensive line uh, and almost skirts through. Really good tackle there that could obviously transform the game as well. However, those things didn't happen and, and Leinster's defence was particularly excellent, I thought. Um, Carney was needed again later. It was in the, it was early in the second half, actually. Ramos cut through and he, and he, he cut him down as well. Um, but apart from that, there was really good connection in the front line. You think of that example in the second half where DuPont passes into touch in front of Colby. That was after a really good defensive set where they'd... Um, not quite hammered up out of the line, but they'd come with a bit of line speed, stay connected, guys like Ringrose and Sexton just easing off at the right time and allowing their wingers to close up as Lowe did for, for that pass. They're really pleased with the defensive performance. Um, but I do feel I, I do feel there's more to come from them. I think to lose even with the... It was Gary Ringrose's last gasp um, defence to prevent Maydard scoring on that little chip and chase when they were under more pressure again. And you look at Richie Gray's insanely stupid yellow card mm. that leads to the... the Luke McGrath try as well so I, I felt I mean that's what happens obviously good teams pressure worse teams into mistakes but I actually think there's more to come from Leinster and that's why I'm so excited about this final I feel like Saracens are the right team to bring out what might be their best performance yet as a, as a collective um, and that's not to diminish what they've done this game I thought there was there was loads of good about it and Johnny Sexton being back um, to, a, to a, a kind of world class level was really encouraging for them his kicking was excellent, line kicking in particular on the penalties, mm. finding really good distance. Yeah. His place kicking obviously was excellent. That's the Dave Alred influence, isn't it? I actually asked, <laughs> uh, what invited him on LinkedIn. Oh, yeah. So he accepted my invitation. So I'm going to try and contact him now. Yes. And, Let's uh, get him on. Let's yeah, get him on yeah. the podcast. I'm sure you would. That would be brilliant. But, um, um, yeah, so I think there's, I think I actually think they can be better. Essentially, Leinster. I thought it was really good, but I think there's more to come. Is it fair to say though that with some of those incidents, like the um, a couple of last gasp tackles and defensive fronts when things were kind of on the line, is part of the makeup of a really strong team? Like strong yeah, defense absolutely. is absolutely, and that's part of the makeup of Rob Carney and others who made those those reads. Um, I, I just don't don't think it was a, per- a perfect performance in that sense, mm. but absolutely they deserve credit for that. Um, and Toulouse did stretch them and they did test them even though they were disappointing in other, in, in other elements so look there's so much to like about this Leinster team even you, mm. you talk about the variety even what the front row can do they can carry really powerfully but then you saw Furlong throwing offloads Healy yeah. as well obviously in the build up to, to James Lowe's try and then James Lowe is just the reason we all go and watch rugby games he's just so much fun even before the match he's run around slapping as many arses as he can he's just loving it he uh, loves slapping arses he loves slapping arses energizers they're called yeah. energizers Energizers. Yeah. and then the I was sitting beside Sean Farrell during the game and he pointed out just on the half time you know it ran to like 48 minutes they get a free kick and he tries to quick tap it and Wayne Barnes like no no mate the, the half is over <laughs> yeah, yeah. he's like oh okay that's my don't touch the wet paint type <laughs> yeah. thing he's got it he's got yeah. it in spades yeah he just couldn't he, he's boundless energy and just a brilliant finisher even the non-try finish was so good yeah where he picks it off his t- off his boot laces an unbelievably strong fend into Colby uh, and rounds uh, to to not score the try as it turns out his try his finish for the actual try as well was superb he's so good at like leaning his body 
into the tackle to use their momentum to leave him upright and to parachute a tackle. Mm. It's really clever. And he uses his arm again. It wasn't a fend. He just used it as kind of like bull bar into the tackle. Really clever stuff. So he's a joy to watch. A question here from Shawnee Mason uh, on the topic of James Lowe. Is James Lowe an immediate starter if or when he becomes eligible for Ireland? I'll start with you, Andy. Um, yeah, yeah, he is for sure. In An immediate starter. I would say, yeah, he is. I think he's probably one of the best wingers in Europe. Um, aside, I, it, it sticks in my gut a bit, the whole residency three-year thing. He's so not Irish, but, you know, there's plenty of players around the world and the same. And New Zealand, All Blacks pick people who are very much not from New Zealand regularly. So um, if we're thinking you know, in a non-nationalistic point of view, yes, he he would be an immediate starter for me. He The likelihood of Joe Schmidt picking him, I would say, is very slim, given that he won't abide by all the directives he'll give. He clearly won't, because he just doesn't do that. But um, he, I don't think he qualifies until Farrell is the coach. So he's a much greater chance of being selected in reality, I think, with, with Farrell being there. Will Farrell encourage people to touch the wet paint? <laughs> I hope so. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see if the philosophy changes, won't it? Um, For you, Murray, an immediate starter picking, to going absolutely. back? Absolutely. I just love watching the guy. And I think he's worked hard to improve the other bits. Even in this game, you saw two box kicks from the, the dreaded box kick from, from Luke McGuire earlier on, where he gets up and puts on massive pressure, makes a really good tackle on Ramos, or Dupont, sorry, and then he forces an error from Ramos in the air, knock on, and, and they win the ball back defensively as well. I think there was one occasion where he just bit in off his left edge, uh, maybe just got a little bit excited and nearly left mm. him in a, in a troubling situation down the right-hand side of the Toulouse attack. But again, he's worked hard on that. And on, like his attacking flair and everything is, is beyond doubt. I think attacking-wise, he's probably the best uncapped player there is. But it's all those other elements that someone like Andy Farrell will have to consider as well. I definitely think he'll be well in the mix, though. November twenty twenty, he's qualified. I think. I think. Um, I may, you know, the maybe giving him a bit of a, a disservice in the sense. I, you know, while he's brilliant to watch and he obviously is risky, the ratio of risky things he does that end in a failure for his own team is very very small. It's mm. not like he's got. Um, you know, the Alison Becker, the Liverpool goalkeeper, excellent most of the time, but you know he's got a clanger in his wardrobe there. Lowe hasn't really done any obvious clangers that have cost his team a match or cost his team a, a try. He's just very risky, but more often than not, he's got this incredible capacity, which is so rare. As a left winger, he influences everyone on the interior part of his team. Usually the arrow's gone in the very opposite direction. Everyone influences what happens and the winger gets the ball and is, is a, I suppose, is on the receiving end of what everyone else does on the inside. He has this capacity to change a game for everyone inside him by what he does. And you only have to watch when he gets the ball. The support lines and the energy levels around him, they are literally flooding into the spaces either side of him because they know the ball is coming and they know he can do it with control. So to have that influence from out that wide so often is incredible mm. as a winger. So I don't want to do him a disservice by saying don't touch the wet paint. That yeah. suggests he's he's loose. He's not actually loose. He's flash, but he's not loose. His, is there a, sorry, on, one of his best moments was... It was like 47 minutes in and Rob Carney hits him on the switch and he's under pressure massively. It looks mm. like they're going to be stopped way behind the game line. He beats Aki, DuPont mm. and Elstad with this unbelievably bullocking run, just mm. so determined and gritty, so much fight. And that is, as you say, infectious. And that's a really good point about him, certainly in attack anyway, not offering up opportunities to lose. We spoke about that before the game, saying that just hanging on to the ball doesn't mean you have to just bash off nine which I thought Leinster did really well. They played off Johnny Sexton, even when they were being direct in their carries against line speed, they played off Sexton. And you saw it paying off, say, in the second half where he hit Sean O'Brien for that line break straight through midfield, mm. where they'd taken a bit of punishment, but finally Sexton mm. threads the ball through the eye of the needle and, and they break. And then for the try off yeah. the scrum, the, the nine phases was superb, where you had Healy offloading, obviously Sean O'Brien offloading with the assist, Jack Conan's footwork, James Ryan on that, brilliant carry off nine where he is the best in the world now mm. I think at timing his run because so many guys are just working so hard to get into position early but he's clever it's like delaying his run so he can accelerate onto the ball it seems so simple but it's so hard to do 
and it was brilliant in that build-up. Also interesting that Saris were so effective in that zone just off the, the ruck. You think of the Michael Rhodes try, obviously the prime example, where they flood a number of runners, plus the winger, Liam Williams in this case, coming off his blind side to offer short off the nine. And having got over the gain line, it was too difficult for Mike Haley and John Ryan, I think it was. They, they split, picked the two wrong guys and they go straight through. So that was an interesting part of the weekend's action, I thought. But that try from Leinster showed that keeping the ball and going through phases doesn't have to be dull and unambitious. Absolutely. If you have the skill level, you can do so much more. Steve Abood was the, um, he'd gone to Italy now with Conor O'Shea and to to try and change up their academy. Yeah. And he was the academy coach um, for the likes of myself and Darcy O'Driscoll. Uh, I, was, I was the one who didn't come through, obviously, all those lads. O'Connell, O'Callaghan, Paddy Wallace, a brilliant academy set up yeah. uh, that, those couple of years. But he had this, uh, I think it was a Japanese phrase, Shidi, Hodi, he used to say, it was later is better. So like as a, coming onto the ball, arriving dead late, but at full pace is the way to do it. I think if you compare the likes of Conan and James Ryan to the very admirable CJ Stander, he arrives early, give me the ball, and he runs into someone. And it's very, very physical. It's demanding on him. It asks a question of the defence, but it doesn't penetrate. The other lads are coming as late as they can at the last second at a different angle. And that's why they they seem to seamlessly get across the game line so often. Because the defence can't see them. They can't tee them up. They can't set their feet in the ground and go, right, he's coming, brace yourself. It's actually shit he just arrived and he's mm. a soft shoulder on me and he's five yards behind your soak up tackles and the the difference in that is is uh, facilitates Leinster's phase play to be non-boring and non-confrontational at times It's I mean it's really direct but it's not running into people all the time yeah and they're the most vulnerable defenders like if you get a tight five forward wider out to the defensive line bingo you, you've got your it. line break yeah. they're obviously always positioned around the ruck almost as a safety, but also because they're big hitters and if you run into them, they're going to absolutely destroy you. But they are vulnerable in that a late change of angle or something late coming across their eye line is... Mm. They're slower reacting, say, to the backs, but they're obviously more powerful. It's it's really clever stuff from Leinster. It, it seems so simple, but not everyone can do it. And it yeah. takes a bit of balls, doesn't it? Because if you don't get there and your nine doesn't have an option to hit, he's going to absolutely ball mm. you out of it and you're going to cost your team a, a lot of metres. So um, bravo to Leinster, I guess, for... for having the balls to do it. Yeah. Before we look at that mouth-watering uh, Champions Cup final, just one last word on Toulouse, Andy. I couldn't let them go without you uh, mm. maybe finishing off their season. I know they're, they've plenty to play for back home, but even going back to what you were saying about Leinster at the start and how they didn't quite bow to uh, conservatism that one might have expected them to, did Toulouse actually do that a little bit? Like when we mentioned Servac coming on with the tee at every given opportunity, constantly taking the points did they kind of maybe lose their balls a little bit given what yeah. we've seen from them from so far this season? I think I think they started with great intentions. I actually thought the first 10 minutes they looked really dangerous. And I just, where, where, they're, not, where they're not quite at the pitch now is um, when they hit a roadblock, such as smart Leinster play or Leinster, which was really interesting to watch, was their, the, how they implemented changes in tempo in the game during stoppages, they actually slowed the game down in the first 15 minutes. And there's no coach can teach you that. They can tell you it, but you'll forget it in the heat of the bottle. But two teams that have won, Lancer have won four European Cups since 09. And the best part of the last two European Cups was on the field. And that is just smart experience. They diffused the Toulouse bomb in 15 minutes. They They... Had some last-ditch tackles. Toulouse looked really, really dangerous, but suddenly they were diffused. And I, I think Leinster were smart enough to slow the game down. They walked between every single line. That's not their style. They often run and they, they want to squeeze the team and pressurise the team. You could see off the ball what they were doing. They just calm, slow it down, slow it down. They, these guys will run themselves into the ground. Or when, I think they knew when they were able to pose a few questions for Toulouse, they probably didn't have the wherewithal to maintain playing an explosive way. And I think that's what happened. They they suddenly then went, well, what do we do now? And then they started going conservative. And then they didn't know what they were at. Um, but had they got momentum in that first 15 minutes or a try or two, it could have been an entirely different game. But that's experience. So to answer your question, I would say Toulouse did, 
about conservatism, but it was more con- more they were victims of uh, confusion. I think after fifteen minutes, they didn't know what to do because Leinster diffused it, their momentum. So smart by Leinster, and while disappointing for Toulouse, I think over the course of a season they have made quite an impact. And you know, while you know, not sure about Hugo Mola, I think Reggie Son's reintroduction has been really positive and definitely going back to playing with the um, the intention of an offloading game and Pierre Villepreux who was given Hall of Fame uh, World Rugby Hall of Fame last year was the guy who started it all really for them in the 80s and, and going back to those values of uh, he had a famous phrase I think it was innovation not organisation or something like that so um, they're kind of going back to those values and you could see it for most of the season but they're not quite able to do it maybe at European semi-final stage just yet against the brilliant Leinster side but I would be very very confident they'll be there thereabouts again next year and probably a little bit better for this year's experience So to the two teams in the decider uh, Leinster and Sarri's era defining two of the best teams ever to do it it doesn't actually get better than this I don't think is it the best final on paper that we've seen? Yeah I can't I've been looking forward to this one for for years really last year's quarterfinal was wasn't quite satisfying you were excited that they finally got paired up but Saris weren't there at that time they were missing key players they just didn't have the form and it was almost disappointing how Leinster controlled it so much 30-19 I think the scoreline was in the end probably didn't even do it justice so I think actually some of the Leinster players will be happy to have a shot at a full strength fully firing Saris as well because I think you're right I think it moves them on to a record fifth title and um, and I think it would stamp their position as probably the greatest club side in Europe ever. Um, certainly this group and, and what they've done even on an international scale as well. There's so many Grand Slam winners in the two teams, England versus Ireland. There's so many different aspects like that. And then tactically, it's just going to be fascinating. You talk about mm-hmm. Leinster's control there. I think Saracens showed they can do that so well. The, the sight of Owen Farrell literally strutting around during their phase play, even when they're defending, they were just so comfortable at all times. And I felt like they had another they could have pushed on another gear even against Munster. Mm. Um, I think their attack is really interesting as well. That's going to be a, a big challenge for Leinster. The way they zigzag was so interesting. There is real structure there, but having a guy like Alex Good allows you to play both sides of the ruck. Um, Liam Williams is someone who can break a game. And then you have James Lowe doing that for Leinster. So I think it's going to be really interesting to see what will almost certainly be quite a structured final. They'll pro- both probably take their points. They'll both try and pressure each other mm. into those errors. Um, but then those players who can break the mould and break the structure and ho- uh, hopefully break the game. So there's so much, fa- there's so many fascinating, fascinating elements to it. Um, but I, and I, I really find it hard to call. I really do. I think they're so evenly matched um, in terms of what they can do, how they can pressure, how they can open up an attack um, and offer different things. So I'm going to mull over it until we do our preview episode and then mm. make a prediction then. Can I can I press you for a very premature uh, prediction? Annie? Well, if if you, in case you didn't both realise, I think deep down I consider myself a bit of a rugby know-all, and uh, <laughs> the thing that excites me about this final is I've no idea what's going to happen. I don't have any kind of um, sense of what they might do on the day because there's this whole like there's two tribes that are going to go to war. There's the chess aspect of it. There's the the intelligence of the coaching t- two coaching teams and how flexible they can be in their in their approaches with their players. There's the matchups, the Sexton v Farrell matchups that are happening across the field. So it's I just think um, it is probably, without doubt. I think it's going to be the it's in the lead up the most anticipated European Cup final since the competition began. Um, and if you're you are pressing me, I would say Leinster going to win it based on game intelligence slightly more than Saris. I just have a feeling that this group have shown they can win in multiple ways. They can perform under huge pressure in a cool way. I've always loved Lancaster's phrase about um, comfortable in chaos. And they they do espouse that when you see them in that semi final diffusing the the onslaught from Toulouse in the first ten to fifteen minutes, and then they've got these X factor players like like Low, um, 
and yeah, I, I could see them I can see them winning it just about for that intelligence they show in the heat of battle. So I'd pip for them. Have you had time enough to think about it, Murray, there over the last yeah. If if I depress I just, you, yeah. are you leaning one way or the I'm other? I'm leaning towards Saracens probably at the moment. Oh. Yeah. I, I just think probably the England Ireland game is is recent in my memory, but the sheer level of um brutal power that a lot of those Saris guys can bring, I think will be decisive. Now Leinster can bring that themselves, but I think when Vunapola bro- brothers on form and um they're getting a well over the game line and then Farrell and Goo can play off that. I think that's a, a massive factor in it. I don't really see a weakness in the Saracens team. I don't see, you know, obviously Stuart Lancaster and Leo Cullen would be better at doing that, but I don't see where Leinster are going to um, break them down. And particularly if they get ahead like they did against Munster. You saw how clever it is. Like They get ahead and then suddenly they start taking risks in defence because they know you're going to have to run it. You saw Munster trying to run out of their half in the second half and Saracens bring even more line speed than ever. I think they're so clever in that way. They just constrict you and make you do things that you don't want to do. Um, and they're so confident how they're going to do that to you. Listen, I think it's going to be a, a one, one kick game, but I'm probably leaning towards Saris. Well, the fact that you're both kind of diametrically opposed and yet only ever so slightly leaning in the opposite direction uh, is a testament to the game we have on our hands. Should be an absolute cracker. Uh, we're going to very briefly look at the uh, last round of Pro 14 fixtures. Uh, but before we do that, our colleague Sean Farrell caught up with Ulster's Geordie Murphy and he started by asking him how he has settled in Belfast and how the season has been off the field. It's been great, yeah. Um, I think that has a lot to do with uh, the playing group up at Ulster. They've uh, really made me feel welcome from the off and um, it's quite a young playing group so I suppose they don't have... uh, a lot of them don't have wives and kids to kind of be going home to so there's plenty to do after training. A lot of boys want to meet up for for barbecues and coffees and stuff like that so that definitely helps Sim, similar sure like between uh, player management you know there's a lot of synergy between provinces and and Ireland everything feeds down I suppose from Ireland but I mean the adjustment needed to just the win loss ratio to be in a heavy defeats like like Munster is there an adjustment in the dressing room of, of your mindset in, in that sort of way? I think it was just the start of the season, you know, like there was a lot of fresh faces coming in, a lot of academy boys who were, were getting promoted to be playing senior rugby and uh, fresh faces, not just from the playing group, but also from the coaching staff and just implementing philosophies and stuff is just a transition period. And I think we've really come through that well. And the start of the season was a bit bumpy, a couple of tough losses to take but I think we've learned a lot from them and we've kicked on well in, in many ways the, the final days of the season are still ahead but I mean after after those bumpy bits as they say I mean there seems to be real progression real kind of uh, move forward for the team how would you assess kind of where Ulster are on, on that curve I think we're definitely on an upward curve but look there's still a lot to be done like obviously we had that tough loss against Leinster in the in the quarter final and um, emotionally we were probably a bit drained and then six days later we went over and and really got a bad enough beaten by Glasgow as well so I think that's the sign of a team that still needs to grow a lot to be able to um, back up a, an incredibly disappointing result obviously against Leinster where we did front up and we came just short but to be able to turn that around and come back the following week and front up again and uh, try and get a win which which unfortunately we didn't but um, look I think we're definitely we're definitely going in the right direction um, we have a really good playing squad young players coming through all the time there's quality academy up in Ulster and uh, they're keeping some of us older heads even hungrier and um, just Dan's philosophy of good, like quick running rugby is is really suiting everyone and it's the kind of brand of rugby you want to play so um, it's been great. Interpros always have a special atmosphere to them and Leinster this fixture always seems to when it goes to Kingspan Stadium at the end of the season there's a little bit of a carnival atmosphere I'm sure you'll remember um, Ruan Pienaar's farewell game a few years ago I mean, knowing what's ahead, though, with the Connacht game around the corner, is there a balance to be struck between, I mean, hold, holding something back or holding uh, holding some plays in reserve for, for the big game around the corner? 
I think it's very hard to do in an end pro game, especially against rivals like Leinster, you know, and as you said, it's 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 one that the fans really look forward to every year at uh, the last um game of the of the domestic season before knockout. So um it'll be interesting to see how, how both teams get on this weekend. Like obviously they've got a lot to play for, not just in in the league but in, in Europe. So uh, we'll see what kind of a team they send up. But look, regardless, we're we're looking for a victory. We're it's been a long time coming, uh, especially at home in the Kingspan. So we just definitely want to get a victory. Between Rory Best and, and Darren Gave, we'll start a, a goodbye tour, I suppose, this weekend. Hopefully, still have four games to go, I think. Um, but you would have known them from Ireland camp beforehand, before you moved to Ulster. Uh, have you learned anything, anything new about them or anything about them surprise you, the way they go about their business that um, this season? I would have known them quite well before, but I suppose on a personal level, getting to know them a bit better and just two genuinely really good blokes and we'll be sorry to see them go. Um, Bessie's obviously been an incredible leader for us. I think he's played 15 or 16 seasons and Darren, Darren's not far off. I think he's about 10 or 11 and 220 odd caps and um, he's just been great, great guy to have around the squad. Just a bit of a joker when he wants to be and also incredibly... Uh, serious and um, just with really positive messages coming through the whole time so those two guys have obviously been really really good for the squad we'll be sorry to see them go but um, hopefully we can send them off in in style with uh, with as many victories as possible yeah you've been in a Leinster squad obviously where you've had to wave goodbye to, to Leo Cullen Brian O'Driscoll Eason Oseo twice you're, you're part of the second one I mean what does a squad have to do to fill a void of when a player is that important where where they're so key to the ethos of the team what what does the squad in general need to do I think it's always tough to do um, maybe you do, you're not going to replace anyone like for like because those players are incredible players in their own right but I think anyone that is playing in their position or um, anything along those lines needs to just kind of have learned as much as they can from them in the past and um, kind of bring as much as they can into their own game but also bring their own bit of twist on it and it's one of those things we we can't um as sorry as we'll see these players or as sorry as we'll be to see these players go we don't want to be leaving a void for too long because that's when you'll really get hurt and um like we we've done well this season um with still a lot to play for but we want to improve again and again next season um, and unfortunately we won't have those boys but there's plenty of guys uh, waiting in the background to take their opportunity as well Since the quarter-final defeat in the Viva Stadium how, what has the focus been like or what is there redoubled intent on aiming at the Pro 14 kind of targeting that silverware uh, well, look, our goal from the start of the season was to get to knock out rugby, and we've managed to do that now, obviously, on both fronts in the domestic league and in the European Cup. But it was one of those things that probably took us a bit too long to get over the Leinster game, and that Glasgow really took advantage of that in the in the game we played against them in the league the following week. But we know we can't do anything about that. That's that's gone now and in the past. So we're we're all eyes on this weekend and then following weekend against Connacht again and. Look, we, we're in a position now where we've achieved one of our goals of getting to knock out rugby, but we absolutely want to keep going and going and just win some silverware because um, Ulster, unfortunately, haven't won, won a lot in a while. So um, this group of players is definitely hungry to, to do well. Pro 14, a uh, bit of a come down, it has to be said, in the sense that uh, Ulster are playing Leinster for absolutely no reason at this point. Uh, Munster obviously have uh, still got a home semi-final in mind, but it's not really up to them. Murray, just talk us through it very briefly so we can go home. Yeah, well, Ulster and Connacht are already kind of looking towards their quarterfinal up in Belfast. That's going to be a great occasion. So I guess for the two of them, it's about getting some momentum back after a weekend off, uh, building in towards that. Munster can still potentially get a home semi-final if they win and, and Glasgow lose to Edinburgh, which probably looks unlikely. Um, so Munster probably looking at a, a home quarter final. I think the, probably the most interesting aspect of the whole weekend of Pro 14 is Benetton hopefully sealing a playoff spot for the first time. They are away to Zebra and a, a win would actually do it if, if Edinburgh don't win also, but a bonus point win would guarantee them that third spot in Conference B, which 
would be the story of the season really in, in European club rugby but absolutely brilliant for Italian rugby in general um, and just for a, a brilliant squad they've been excellent all season so keeping a close eye on that one um, but yeah there's not too much on the line with Ulster Leinster still Leinster probably they, I would imagine they feel a strong enough team and, and try and carry through some momentum as well so there would be uh, plenty of eyes on it anyway We'll get a couple of very quick predictions then Ulster Leinster start with yourself Murray I think Ulster will win Andy? Uh, Lancer. Okay. And Monster and Connacht. Andy? What are you, you going to say, Murray? I'm just going to go. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'll say Monster. So. Connacht. <laughs> Excellent. Will Benetton get the job done, Murray? Yeah, they'll get. A, I think they'll get a bonus point and see the off. Andy? Been really consistent. I'd love, I'd love it if they, if they got you. I think they need it. Italian rugby needs a boost. Excellent. Gentlemen, thanks very much. We'll catch you again next week. Thanks, Gav. I just want to say thanks to Mirren. She emailed us a really lovely email about... That's enjoying right. the podcast so thanks to her we're in foins thanks it was a very nice email indeed much appreciated and uh, if anybody else would like to send us some lovely emails please do uh, until next week enjoy the Pro 14 over the weekend if you can Andy <laughs> 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 and we will catch you next Thursday take it easy